Right, we are in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Galatians 1, 15 through 17. A very brief reminder of taking these last parts of chapter 1, verses 11 through 24 in five parts. We did the revelation of the gospel, how the gospel was revealed to Paul. That was verses 11 and 12. We did remembering the past last week, and that was verse 13 and 14, and it's really reflected on Paul's zeal uh, without knowledge and all of his dedication to putting out or stamping out the church of God. And obviously, it's by grace that he was saved. It was certainly not by anything that he was doing. And now tonight, that he really is an apostle. He really is an apostle, and we'll see that in verses 15 through 17. Um, I'm reading from my own translation. I don't think it's vastly different than the ESV. I think the word order is the same. It may not be, but uh, this is the order I've written it in. But let me read my translation. You can follow along in the ESV. I don't think it'll be drastically different. But when God, uh, God's in brackets, in the ESV it might say he, but he and God being the same, obviously. But when God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him. I know I'm still reading, but I do want to note that in case I forget later. But we always preach the gospel, and certainly that's right, and there's no contradiction here, but the text literally says to preach him, because him is the gospel, Christ is the gospel, and so, but it does designate it that way, that he might preach him among the Gentiles. And then notice his response, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, your, your text may say anyone, but the Greek text says with flesh and blood. Nor, nor did I go up into Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Now, there may not be much new for you tonight, but I do have one thing that might be different than you've heard before, and that will be what was he doing in Arabia, as what we've heard may not be totally all that was going on in Arabia. All right, so number one tonight, God's prerogative. God's prerogative. I want you to note the change of writing and to see how the emphasis turns. So in verses 13 and verse 14, it was all I. You look back at 13 and 14 just for a moment. You heard of my former life. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing of many, more, more so than many of my own age, my people. Uh, I was uh, zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I, my, I, my, I, my. Then you get to verse 15 where we are tonight, and you get an immediate change. But when he... But when God, now, now we've turned it, and all the emphasis becomes upon the he or the his. And you see that in verse 15, he or God set me apart before I was born and called me by 
His grace. And so we see that flopping of the the dominant emphasis to be upon God and what God did. So let us summarize, just for clarity, let us take it from John Stott, because I couldn't see it no better than he said it here, and it is this. He would summarize the Apostle Paul in the following way, quote, In my fanaticism, I was bent upon a course of persecution and destruction. But God, now parentheses, but God, whom I left out of my calculations. But God, you know, the one that I didn't put in my uh, uh, calculations here, arrested me and changed my headlong course. All my raging fanaticism was no match for the good pleasure of God. God just arrested me and changed my headlong course. I was headstrong this way, I got arrested, and I went the other way. This is what God does by the power of his gospel. Now, when this change happens here, and now we have this dominant emphasis upon the he, here's what happens. Here's what God does, and these are the main things that stand out in this text. Number one, he was separated. He was set apart. He was divided from the group. So get the analogy. If we're working with this group here tonight, it's as if God comes down and takes Ronnie, sets him out and puts him over there in that section and separates him from everyone else. That's what the word means. I was a part of the human condition. I was very much man like anybody else, and God divided me out and separated me and put me in another family. I was separated by God. Kind of like in Romans 1.1 is the same word. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. Set apart for what? Why was he set apart? For the gospel of God. That's Romans 1.1. Then in Acts 13.2, you have this phrase, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said this, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. I'm going to do something different with Barnabas and Saul. Set them apart for this specific task. And what comes also in this vein of separation is the idea of before birth. Romans 9, 10 through 13, you'll remember the text. And I would say to you that Paul, much like Jacob, was set apart before birth. In Romans 9, he says about Jacob and Esau, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, you remember our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and come out of the womb yet, they had done nothing good and nothing bad. They've done nothing. They haven't come out of the womb. But in order that God's purpose, this is God's thing, in order that God's purpose of election might stand or might continue, it's not because of works 
Not anything Jacob did, not anything Esau did. It's not because of works. It's all about him who calls. That's what she was told. This is it. Quote, the older will serve the younger. For it's written in the Old Testament and in the New. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. There's this separation, even before birth, that Paul is referring to. This is why I'm an apostle. God himself, through the revelation of Christ, set me apart. He revealed himself to me. He gave me this specific task. This is his work in me. When did he do this, Paul? Well, you see, he actually did it from my mother's womb. That's when God started this work. There's no will of mine involved. All of my will was headstrong in Judaism. And I was going past all my Jewish friends and all of my education. But you see, that was my will, but God violated my will. God arrested me and canceled my will and set me apart for something different. He did this while I was in my mother's womb, but I just didn't come to the realization of it until I was a grown man walking down a road to Damascus. You see, it was all going to happen. I want you to understand, all of this is in the framework of the sovereignty of God, but the apostle Paul had to live. He experienced life. He really sinned. He really persecuted the church. And he, when he was really confronted with the gospel, he really had to repent in time and history. And he had to believe upon Jesus. Don't allow your sovereignty, theology of sovereignty, to negate the necessity of repentance and faith. Both exist. You say, I can't reconcile them. Stop trying. God set him apart before he was born. He lives his life in sin, but in history a time it comes. This is Christ that I'm persecuting. I am wrong. And he is broken by the power of the gospel to such a degree that he's changed forever. It has to happen in time and history. I get so aggravated at the nonsensical approach that somebody can sprinkle their baby and somehow magically transform them into the kingdom of God. Look, I don't care if you sprinkle your baby with water at home, sprinkle your baby at the Catholic water by the Pope himself. Unless your baby grows up to a point to come knowledgeable of his sin and repent of it and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to end up in hell. You cannot pass conversion on like it's hereditary or that it runs in your genealogy. Your grandmother's faith can't get your grandbaby's baby into heaven. There must be conversion. If not, why is the New Testament even written? That's a pet peeve of mine, I guess. But all the way back in Judges, we have this same thought of from the mother's womb. You remember the Nazarite vow? You shall conceive, you'll bear a son, no razor shall come upon his head. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, from the womb. And, she shall, and, she ha- and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, in reference to Samson, Judges 13.5. And then you hear the psalmist talking this way, Psalm 22.10, on you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Think about it again. He's born a baby. 
from my mother's womb, you were my God. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. He never read the Bible. He hasn't repented. He hasn't believed. But it's been this truth that God was his God, but he still had to come to that reality in time and history. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray when? From birth, speaking lies. Psalm 71, 6, upon you I have leaned from before my birth. Before I was born, I was leaning upon you. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. We can speak this of a truth. As a Christian man, even today, as a Christian man, I can say, before I was born, God elected me. God called me. God put his hand on me. When I was born and I was naked and I was crying, I didn't understand that. I didn't grasp any of that. I'm just a baby looking for a bottle and a change of diaper, right? But now that I've grown older, now that I've come to repentance and faith, now that I'm 53 years of age, I can agree with the psalmist. Before I was born, he had his hand on me. Before I was born, he had called me to himself. Before I was born, I was leaning myself upon the Lord Jesus. It's always been true. I just didn't know it until I came to this point in my life. Jeremiah says much the same as the Apostle Paul. Before I formed you in the womb, the Lord tells Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, to Isaiah 49. It's a a little bit longer section I want you to see in case you have forgotten of it. Because I think there's a connection here with it and Paul... Isaiah 49, verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Here's your phrase. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right, my vindication is with the Lord. My recompense or my work is with my God. And now the Lord says, you know, the one who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You're telling me that Isaiah has this call set apart by God from the womb that the gospel would go beyond the parameters of Israel into the Gentile nation? Yes, not only in the Old Testament, but specifically through the Apostle Paul. So then when you get over to Acts 13, you get it quoted. In Acts he says, For the Lord commanded us, saying, 
Acts 13, 47. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So he separated out but from the womb of his mother for this specific task of taking the gospel into the Gentile world. All of this done before he's even born. The second thing that I want you to see in our text tonight in Galatians is that he was called. So he separated, for sure, from his mother's womb, but that he is also called. A basic definition of kaleo is to, to summon. It's more than an, an invite that you can accept or reject. It's a summoning by an authoritative figure that summons you to appear before court, if you will. Uh, you're going to receive a special benefit or a special experience by the one who has called you. Let me give you a few texts to verify this word. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul is preaching here. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. Let us all remember tonight, separated by the call of God. God calls your name. God gets your attention. He reminds you of your sinfulness. He shows you the beauty of the Savior. He makes your phone ring. He causes you to pick up the phone and say, hello, Lord, I am here. What do you want from me? God calls. If God doesn't call your line, you can't make it ring yourself. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, what God of all grace? The one who calls you, the one who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Timothy, you have eternal life because God called you to eternal life. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom we were called. God's been faithful to call you, to secure you, to keep you. Let us rejoice in this calling. And then one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We're here to proclaim his excellency. We had all these debates about free will and Calvinism and election and sovereignty. Look, I was called to make his excellencies known. God called me. God reached me. God saved me. God raised me up. God gave me life. God gave me a new heart. God gave me a spirit. Praise be to God for what he did in my life because I'd have never pulled it off myself. That's our response. Instead of all these endless debates of people jockeying for position to who's smarter, why don't we learn to glory in the one who called? Everybody debating, somebody ought to pick up the phone and answer. How did he call us? The text says, through his grace. Grace excludes everything else that might be considered. No human merit, no free will, no righteousness, just grace alone. And our text tells us, he's in verse 16, that you have this separation and you have this call 
How does that work? It works in unity with the good pleasure of God. Why, Why does God do it this way? Because that's what he was pleased to do. Why, does, why would God not have the right to do what brings him pleasure? He is God after all. Isn't God free to do what pleases him? Oh, well, what about my will? What about this? What about God's will? What about God's pleasure? What about what makes God look good? What about God doing something that all the angels in heaven would rejoice and say, how in the world did you save him? Why don't we think about it from the perspective of God, his good pleasure. The word eudokeo means to consider something as good and therefore worthy of choice to determine or to resolve. Think that through. Put that through your finite mind. Look through your wicked, depraved, wretched heart, thinking about who you started out with from birth. And, And the God of heaven who's holy, holy, holy looks down and says, you're worthy to be chosen under my family. And he calls you by name, separates you out, and adopts you into his family. How in the world did you find me worthy to be called? You're scraping the bottom of the barrel, God. What was God God pleased to do without any input from Paul? He was pleased to separate Paul from his mother's womb before he had done good or evil. He was separated unto God in eternity past, but in time and history as an adult. God was pleased to call Paul to himself totally out of grace, God didn't even consider the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day and of the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't even consider that. It's not even important. He didn't consider anything that Paul had done. He just said, you know what? I'm going to give you new life. Follow the story in Acts 9. There's a crowd of people. They hear it thunder, but Paul hears an audible voice. They don't understand, and one person out of a group is selected and removed, and the rest don't even understand what happened. God's free. Happens in churches and places all over the world. The gospel's preached on the street, it's preached in a church, thousands of people, hundreds of people, 50 people, and one person, their life's changed. Because God was pleased to open their eyes and soften their heart. God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. The salvation that Saul, Saul experienced and became Paul was based totally upon the good pleasure of God And there is no reference or hint of a reference to Paul's work in the process. Now, this text says specifically, was well pleased, and then you have to reveal. God was well pleased to do this one specific act, to reveal. To call something to be fully known. To disclose something. To take something that was dark in your mind and dark in your heart and make it as bright as the light. Which is fitting to his testimony in Damascus and seeing the bright light. This is especially true of divine revelation. It's like, I don't understand the gospel. I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand theology. I don't understand doctrine. I don't know why they make such a deal about Christ. And then all of a sudden, God chooses to reveal Christ to the person, and they go, wow, why didn't you tell me about this before? And all of a sudden, it all makes sense, and they're like, why haven't you not told me? I've been telling you this for years. Yeah, but now I see. Ah, 
God's done something. But when God opens the eyes, just like with Saul, the scales fall off. And now I can see. It's like, he's like, dude, i got to preach. And he immediately rises to preach in a sense. It's Revelation. In Galatians 1.12, it's there. You see it. We've already talked about it. In verse 12, God, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through, same word, a revelation. God revealed the Son. And then think about an Old Testament prophet, Daniel, an interpreter of dreams. And think about Daniel, and this makes the sense of the word uh, come to clarity. There's a mystery. There's a dream. Well, Daniel, he wasn't a part of the dream, and the king won't disclose it to him. He's like, I want you to tell me what it is before I even tell you what the dream was about. Well, look, man, that, that stuff belongs to God. I don't know. I mean, I don't have, it's a mystery to me what Daniel could say. So then in Daniel 2.19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Ah, now I know because you made it known to me. Or in Daniel 2.22, Daniel says, he reveals the deep and hidden things. Notice the testimony. Daniel's like, I know nothing. I got nothing. Unless God shows me, I can tell you nothing. That's the word here. Paul's like, I'm persecuting the church. I'm trying to stamp out the gospel. I'm trying to stamp out Christians. I'm trying to do away with Christ. And now all of a sudden, Christ is made known. He's revealed everything about Christ that I didn't know has now become clear. Paul was blind to the truth of the Son, Jesus Christ, and God made the Son known to him. Now why, at least in Saul's case, Saul converted to Paul, why was God pleased to do this? What's the purpose for Saul? Well, the purpose is that he would proclaim him, that I might, the ESV says, that I might preach him. What a great purpose for conversion. It also says uh, in Ephesians 3.8, To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now, the primacy of the Apostle Paul's ministry was undoubtedly to the Gentile nation. Now, let me just, you can write the references down or just hear these. I'll make them really short. But think about the specific call that he, he experienced. Acts 9.15 the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Acts 13, 47, the Lord commanded, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. Acts 15, 12, and signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Acts 18, 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I'm going to the Gentiles. Acts twenty two twenty one. he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then Acts 28, 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. You got to love the last three words. They will listen. There's a people that God's worked with over here. And he's going to take me and send me over there. I'm going to preach the gospel that he revealed to me. And then God's going to reveal that to them. And they're going to listen. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I had the rare privilege with Brandy. It's one of the joys I had the last nine months while I was going to jail there at Tarrant County, Tarrant County Jail. Is, uh, God arrested her. Yeah, surely she's culpable for what she did, and she knows that very well. But God arrested her and put her in a cell. And all those joking times we had before where I tried to get a word in and couldn't get a word in, now we're listening. And so every week you go to the jail, and you're like, she's listening. She's listening to every single word. What a joy to minister to somebody who would listen, hanging on every word. Oh, God, speak to me. And that's what he says about the Gentile nation. And then lastly, God's prerequisite, the end of verse 16 and 17. Prerequisite, what is that? Something that's necessary. Uh, it's necessary to an end or to the carrying out of a function. Something has to happen in order to carry out this process. The prerequisite, you must be separated. You must be converted by a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have that before you can do ministry. Unless you're separated out from the world, unless you're converted by the power of the gospel, unless you have a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, you can't do ministry because you've got nothing to minister, right? So, so when those things happen, that's the prerequisite. Then you can minister anywhere, and God will make that known as you continue to pursue him. And love this about Paul. I love this about the power of the gospel. It gives me hope and courage in Mexico as I deal with pastors who have no commentaries, no books, and no resources. <laughs> I look at a passage like this, and I say, well, it's still possible. Paul says, I didn't consult with anybody. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't talk to anybody. He didn't take up the matter with someone or with a person. <laughs> he says, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. I didn't immediately do that. Flesh and blood. The ESV says, I think, anyone. But just to know, the reference flesh and blood is just to a human person. I'll give you a couple of references. Matthew 16, 17. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, principalities and other, these other things, right? And then in Hebrews 2, 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took up on a human body, flesh and blood. Tonight, as we partake of communion, we're reminded of flesh and blood. Our Lord came in a bodily experience. He was born. He is a real flesh, and he really ate food. He really drank. He was really flesh and blood before the people. He's not a phantom. He's not a mystic. He's a bodily person who bodily substituted on the cross and physically died, and his body was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, and he was put in a tomb, and on the third day, a body was resurrected out of a tomb, and he was a real body that people really saw, and over 500 people People viewed him at one time, and he sat by the seaside, and he prepared fish by a fire, and he ate, and he drank, and he spent 40 days with his disciples, a real body, not a phantom, and he ascended back up into glory, and they are told at that moment, why do you stand here gazing? And the way that you saw him go, he shall return. And as much as Jesus had a glorified body, praise God, all Christians will see, receive a glorified body on the day of resurrection. He didn't go up to Jerusalem 
That's what our text says. You get two Greek words. They have a, a, a different lettering in the front, but the same ending. You have ana, <coughs> on erkomai and op erkomai. On erkomai and op erkomai. On erkomai, he didn't go from a lower place to a higher place. Jerusalem was of a higher altitude than where he was. But then also, he didn't go, uh, he, he went, instead of going up to Jerusalem, up Erkomah, he moved from here out into a place called Arabia and returned to Damascus. You look later in your uh, notes, uh, your uh, map diagram in the back of your uh, Bible, and you'll see over to the right in some of Paul's journeys, this place over here by Damascus, even further over to the east, this place called Arabia. And he went out into that region. Now, I'm not going to make a big deal of this just to finish up the sermon, but to me, it appears that he did more in Arabia than rest and meditate upon what Jesus made known to him. So I, I fully believe that while he's in Arabia, that he's learning and growing and the Lord is revealing things to him for his further ministry that he's going to do in the years to come. But I think there's some really wicked people in that region. I know there's some wicked people in that region in that time. What was he doing in the midst of these wicked people in Arabia somewhere near Damascus? Apparently, he was doing enough that he got the attention of the king. You don't usually get the attention of the king meditating on your own by yourself somewhere, not affecting nobody. I'm just of the idea here, because of his conversion and his immediate preaching, that he must have been doing some gospel work in Arabia over there close to Damascus. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, at Damascus, the governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus. Now, pray tell, why is the king over here around Arabia guarding the city of Damascus? If you have a, whole, a king guarding a city, something must have got his attention. Now, he's guarding the city of Damascus, Paul says, in order to seize me. Now, why is the king trying to seize or kidnap Paul, he says, he, he doesn't tell us why. He goes, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and I escaped his hands. I'm just taking from that text that whatever's going over in Arabia, he got the attention of the king to the degree that the king was trying to kidnap him in Damascus. Why would they be waiting to seize him if all he was doing was resting and meditating and you go back in Acts, right after he receives his vision, immediately he went into the synagogues and began to preach. And so I just, when a man is converted, it becomes very hard to go to seminary for three years and do nothing. Right? So, so that was, so I go to seminary back in whatever year it was. I go to seminary in 1996. And so, look, you're in seminary, you got a wife, you got kids, you got a job, you got all these things, you got seminary, and you, you got to focus all your attention on this, and you, you, just, you just got to put all these other things on hold until you get your degree. It made no sense to me. But there's a place I can preach every Friday night, Presbyterian Night Shelter, Union Gospel Mission. I can go over here, I can preach. I mean, why do I have to wait three years? I know the gospel. 
It's just just like, well, I'll just balance all this out and preach every week to the best of my ability. Why? Because I can't put the gospel on hold for four years or three years or ten years. There's people that need the gospel now. You say, well, wasn't your life really busy? Yeah, it never changes. It never changes. Still the same day. People say, oh, I'm tired. I'm wore out. It's been long. Look, everybody gets the same 24 hours. Everybody gets the same amount of time. Everybody's busy. Everybody's tired. But Paul, busy and tired, in the wilderness of Arabia, says somebody needs the gospel to the degree that the king says, I need to kidnap this dude, and I need to lock him up, and seeks a way to do that. I close with F.F. Bruce, who says about this, He had evidently done something to attract the hostile attention of the authorities in Damascus, for they were trying to kidnap him as he left the city. God alone has the prerogative to set people apart. He has the prerogative to call individuals and to do so in accordance with his good pleasure by revealing his son to whomever he will. As a result of God setting you apart, for those of you in this room who've been set apart by God, as a result of Him calling you, as a result of the Son being revealed to you, we come now to partake of communion, remembering that Christ's body was broken for us, remembering that this whole separation and calling and good pleasure of God revealing the Son was done at the cost of His Son, the Lord Jesus, where He shed His blood to make atonement for your sins. And so that's why we come with a sense of joy and a sense of reverence and a sense of honor because we are dumbfounded that God would be so merciful, so kind, and so gracious to forgive us and to give us new life. So tonight as we eat and as we drink, In your hearts, I pray that you will honor Christ as holy. And I say again, as I've said often, and it's important to say, the table is for believers. Those who have repented of their sins, believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, been baptized by immersion, made a public testimony before their church in the baptismal waters, these are those who make up the family of God. And we are bidden to come and to remember And for those who have not come to that point, they're separated out in the wrong sense. And I hope tonight you would see, I don't want to be cast out. I want to eat. I want to drink. I pray you would see your need to believe on Christ and be baptized in order to honor his name. And that you would do so in faith and obedience to Christ very soon. Let us pray.